You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Addie McCasland. This week's episode is sponsored by Ascension St. John Medical Center in Tulsa. Ascension St. John Medical Center delivers specialty and 24-7 emergency care with a team that works to understand your health needs and provide the care that's right for you. Today, we're talking with Kean Brown and Evans Marinsky, co-presenters at one of next month's Zero Symposium breakout sessions. Kean is an assistant professor in the University of Oklahoma's Clinical Professional Counseling Program. He's a licensed professional counselor and supervisor, depending on the state. He's also nationally certified as a counselor and board certified in neurofeedback and has done extensive work in the adventure therapy realm. Evan is an assistant professor at Johnson and Wales University, as well as a licensed professional counselor in Oklahoma and a licensed mental health counselor in Rhode Island. Evan also has notable experience in adventure therapy and play therapy. We are excited both for Kean and Evan's Zero Symposium workshop, which will blend lecture and experience to highlight key components and outcomes of adventure therapy, as well as their conversation with us here. The mental health download starts now. All right, then how about this? We'll just start with the introductions. Key and Evan, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into doing what you're doing? Yeah, I guess I'll go first. My name is Kean Brown. I'm a assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma in the clinical professional counseling program. I'm a licensed professional counselor and supervisor, depending on the state, and nationally certified as a counselor and board certified in neurofeedback. Oh, I guess what got me into counseling and then is different from like what brought me to adventure therapy. I don't know if we want to unpack that right now, but I'll let Evan introduce himself first. Great. I'm Evan Smarinski, assistant professor at Johnson and Wales University, professional counselor in Oklahoma and LMHC in Rhode Island. I guess briefly, my familiarity and orientation to adventure therapy really came during my time at the University of Arkansas, in large part due to the work and training that my co-presenter, Kean was engaged in at the university and prior to. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> yeah, so I guess what, like, what drew us to this line of work or for counseling for me was uh, when I was 18 and going to college, I, I had a, a near-death experience. And through that processing that experience, I... I really was asking a lot of these existential questions of like, why am I here? Why do I exist? And, and I came to this conclusion of, well, we're all in this essentially together. And so we're, we're here to be of service to one another. And so how can I, how can I best serve others? And through that, like going through psychology and counseling and becoming a clinician, I, went, I took a position as a school-based mental health counselor in the North Texas area. And and through that experience of working with that population and really seeing the needs of those clients, I, I wanted to learn something that would engage them differently than just being in a traditional counseling setting where we're stuck inside and this one-on-one -on -one with somebody who is significantly older than them and that they might not be able to relate to. So that's where I was kind of looking or exploring like what ways can we be active and engaged with one another. And that's how I came across what at the time I was considering adventure-based counseling or nature-based therapy mm -hmm. uh, and has also taken this name of adventure therapy. Mm -hmm. And well, with that, I, why don't you tell us what adventure therapy is? 
Yeah, so that, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer because this has been an ongoing question and I think it's hard to really define it, but there is one. So one time I was told like, it's just the name you prefer to use. So like it could be nature-based therapy, outdoor therapy, wilderness therapy. I think it's kind of like this umbrella term. And like the specific definition would be the, what's been adopted by Gas, Gillis, and I think Russell was that adventure therapy is this prescriptive use of kinesthetic experiences or adventure experiences that are provided by a mental health professional. Um, and it's often conducted in these natural settings or environment that engage clients on a cognitive, affective, and behavioral levels. For me, there's a little bit more depth to that. So like my focus is like when we think about therapy, it's this idea of like creating a container that uses the necessary conditions to bring about therapeutic transformation. And those conditions would be certain elements like, such as the environment or your relationship to nature, the types of activities we use to engage the relationship between group members. So it could be group counseling, but it could also be individualistic. So the relationship between those group members or the client and myself mm -hmm. uh, and how we intentionally process those experiences to make the change that they hope and desire. That leads me to two questions. Number one, you mentioned group members. Do you ever do a family systems approach? So family dynamics, say mother, daughter, or, you know, father, daughter, or siblings. Is that a, is that a tool that's used? In short, yes. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's my specialty. Like I've, I've worked with families mm -hmm. um, and there are several adventure therapy programs that are focused on therapy or working with families, but my work has not been on the family system per se. How did adventure therapy develop as a tool? It's unique. It's a fun and interesting tool, I think, probably viewed from the outside looking in. So I'm just curious about how it came to be. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say it's rooted back to the 1940s, but did not start in, in the United States. It's, and it's rooted in, in education. Mm -hmm. So you might be familiar with the Outward Bound programs. So there was a Kurt Hahn, who is a German educator who lived and or moved to the UK, established these outdoor education programs known as Outward Bound mm -hmm. um, in Wales and England. And then that eventually moved over to the US. And then at the same time, you have another educator and philosopher, psychologist, John Dewey, who was reforming the education system in the US through experiential education. Mm -hmm. and, and really wanting to engage the development of childhood through these outdoor experiential education focuses and building that into the schools, which has led to programs like Project Adventure, which is based out of Massachusetts and the work from Carl Ronke. So a lot of it's housed in education and has just developed out of that. Uh -huh. So that's like the simple thing, but I would say it's all continuously being influenced, like deep ecology philosophy from Arnes, the Norwegian philosopher, is like really in the profession as well. Yeah. What does an adventure therapy program look like? What do you all do in these settings? As Evan had mentioned, he learned a lot of adventure therapy, but his, a lot of his application is as an, as, as an educator. Uh -huh. So I thought he has a very unique perspective and, and a different type of bias than, than me. <laughs> so... 
A typical program, I think a lot of it comes based off the intentionality of what resources you have available to you and the clients that you're working with. Mm -hmm. So the, the type of setting you're in, what is the population, what are the needs of that population. So you have something that could be a, an after-school program or a school-based program happening in or around the school environment. And that could be something that is occurring on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. uh, have something that is a more intensive weekend type outpatient setting where you're working, maybe you're meeting Friday and Saturdays and you're doing these weekend intensives, maybe three day weekend intensives with a population of what could be couples, it could be families, or you can have a just a traditional outpatient where you're meeting week in whatever setting it is. And I think those key components is creating those conditions for transformation. It can be a group or it can be individual. I would consider like walk-talk therapy or horticultural therapy, like a form of adventure therapy. Because uh -huh. you're using this kinesthetic activity to engage the client, right? You're using this process of movement to... Right really explore like yoga i think could also be considered a form of adventure therapy in the way that it could be used so there is that that key piece that you're engaging the client through an, an activity designed to bring about the change that they desire and how that plays in that transformational process mm -hmm. i think you almost just answered my next question which was going to be and maybe it still is what is it about the movement that provides the therapeutic value? Yeah, so I, I'd say, especially with what we're learning more and more about research, and that might be a little bit beyond my understanding too, but when we look at like neuroscience and looking at like the body keeps the score is a very popular book mm -hmm. right now for understanding how we hold emotions and even our cognitive process. Like once we're able to kinesthetically engage that we're able to process this information differently and even give us a new lens or perspective on how we're experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And for me, what I've learned over this course of time of engaging in adventure therapy is there's a common denominator here developmentally. Like one of the first things we learn to do as children is to to walk and to, to move and to engage with this environment to develop our knowledge and understanding of, of the world around us and our understanding of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then that eventually turns into play. And so I think there's something about that, that, that curiosity, that engagement and this sense of play or fun that really helps us navigate and make sense of this world in, in ourselves. So there's like this meaning making aspect to it, I guess. Yeah. Evan, Evan does play therapy. And so I think he also brings a lot of insight and a different perspective through his, his work as a play therapist or using play therapy modalities. So is therapy in a, a form of adventure therapy? That's where the lines blur. I, I think play therapy, it would identify itself separately from adventure therapy. And, and some adventure therapists would even say the difference between AT and like nature-based therapies or this mindfulness and engagement of like that arousal component, right? So like certain activities invoke arousal responses and to where there's this tension or maybe even anxiety around what you're going to face whereas like maybe meditating in a forest like a, which you would, might do in a nature-based therapy 
free activity is not as anxiety provoking as saying white water rafting, right? Okay. So. Yeah. So that's I, as you were saying that I was thinking. So say a rock climbing trip or excursion versus you know a simple walk through the woods. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was going to ask also what were some good examples of adventure based therapy programs? Like would rock climbing be one of those? Would you know? a backpacking trip or yeah those are those are great examples <laughs> so i think how do you define adventure mm -hmm. so some of the programs that i've ran and done in schools will be something that's just more like team building activities and things that you might even see in a office or business setting where they're getting together to build cohesion among the their colleagues or coworkers, And so some, some activities like that, that you can facilitate with groups in schools or students. And then you have this idea of like, there's front country and back country. Uh -huh. So like, what's your accessibility to nature and considering that, and that also informs like the type of activities, right? If you don't have access to a river or a rock wall, you're not going to be able to do kayaking, stand up paddle boarding or rock climbing. Right. So I, I think that's where when we think of the kinesthetic activities, it can be some of these extreme sports mm -hmm. per se, or it can be something simple as a group kinesthetic team building activity, like a trust fall. Uh -huh. Even like high rope courses or low rope courses can be added elements. My dissertation and kind of a lot of my focus has been on the use of, of mountain biking. Uh -huh. uh, especially since where Evan and I went to school was considered like the mountain bike capital of the world, thanks to, to Walmart and all the trails that they've built there. Right, um, right, right. But, and it's interesting because there's this idea of what is called bouldering psychotherapy and, and as a climber, bouldering, you know, without the use of ropes and much shorter walls, but that it's its own separate thing, right? It's like, it's bouldering psychotherapy, but I would also consider that to be a form of adventure therapy because we've used those types of activities in our programs. Mm -hmm. What what do you primarily use adventure therapy to treat? Yeah, Evan, you want to take a stab at that one? <laughs> I mean, it has broad application. A lot of the research literature focuses on like adolescents and, and middle school age children, but it you know, can be applied with adults. I would say in general, you know, the strengths of adventure therapy lend themselves to maybe clients with a little higher level of functioning. And so, you know, severe acute psychiatric illnesses, things like that would probably not be best practice, but, you know, again, it has pretty broad application across age ranges right. and then also presenting problems or it can be also kind of preventative in nature. I think a lot of the applications can look at like developmentally what are the challenges that a, a person might be facing and implementing an AT program to kind of foster that growth that development is this used in conjunction with any other modalities or any other types of therapy or is it typically you're in an adventure therapy program program and this is our focus I would say it's not limit. It's typically adventure therapy has its own specific focus, but I, I wouldn't say it's limited to not being in conjunction with like mm -hmm. say, psychiatric services or right. Sometimes right. if you're working in schools, receiving school services like school counseling or a lot of the students that I worked with or clients I had were receiving IEP plans or changes to their their academic needs, and then also not uncommon if you're working in a group to have 
students or clients or who are also receiving family or individual counseling. Mm-hmm. Evan did bring up a good point though. Like I think when we talk about like the, what does it focus on is that it's a very strengths-based approach. So like those outcomes are really focused on developing self-efficacy, developing resiliency, developing conflict re- resolution. So there, there's a lot of, there's a, a positive psychology piece to it. And I don't know if you want to like argue that, yeah, this mitigates or symptoms of depression or anxiety because there is this element of, of risk that can be associated with it that they have to work through. But like mm-hmm. the spin on that is they're, they're developing this sense of like confidence, courage. So, yeah. I love that. Do you, do you find that people are receptive to the idea of adventure therapy as a valid? That's, that's a, a mixed, it depends on who you're talking to and where you're at. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> I expected that answer actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say it's not all that different to like what you might hear if you're working as a, as a play therapist, right? How's this play meaningful? How's what you're doing actually, you know, helping a client or a kiddo? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say is the biggest barrier of entry into one of these treatment programs? Mm. So if we're talking about, I think wilderness therapy programs have been established and probably the more like what one, someone thinks of when we talk about adventure therapy, they're immediately going to think of like wilderness therapy programs. And, and there's a lot of different models. I think they've come under a lot of scrutiny as of late, and there's a lot of great programs out there. But for, for some of the programs that I would run or things that I would do, it comes down to just those resources. So there's a lot of moving parts, but I think one of the biggest things is, is financially, like support, being financially supportive, right? So is insurance going to pay for this? Is it going to cover it? And that, depending on the program, maybe. Right. I think a lot of times in our, our field, in our industry, in order for insurance to approve something, this has to be, ha- have a protocol. Right. That has to be standardized, right? And I think as a neurofeedback clinician, that's usually the, the issue is that there's no standardized protocols that are accepted by insurance. And I think the same might go for an adventure therapy program. And that's what a lot of those wilderness therapy programs do is like they have a standardized treatment, but a lot of them, I think, are private pay. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you have these high costs that and it only allows accessibility to a certain population that can afford that. Right. So trying to make it more accessible to a wider population. And that's where I think a lot of my work being in schools makes it accessible. So having those community partnerships, I think that's huge. Yeah, I love that. Next one's a two-part question. Part one, what would you say is the biggest barrier to success in completing one of these programs? Part two is how would you define success? Evan, I think you had some good thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, we're talking about access to nature. You're throwing yeah. in, you're adding a component here where if you're doing things outside, you're, you know, you're subject to weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're working with a group, I mean, in an AT group, like the normal things that can interfere with group cohesion, conflict resolution, those sort of factors can limit, inhibit the success or affect outcomes greatly. If you're doing things indoors and you need to have the space for it and have things be conducive to that. So I would say like, again, kind of the normal aspects that happen when you're doing group counseling and then also just, again, you're adding additional elements that can throw things off. So how would you define success? I mean, in terms of 
what what clients the folks are coming in and wanting to get out of the group mm-hmm. uh, like keen was mentioning there's there's so many different things that you can focus on and as far as outcomes yeah yeah it's a tough question to answer it is a tough question to answer i know <laughs> Yeah, I almost want to. The like, part of our our process, I mean, as counselors, is is collaborating on creating these goals, right? And so, is it is it necessarily up to me to define what success looks like, and or am I doing that with the client? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if if I can create or establish that level of rapport with the client or among group members, so like Evan mentioned, like this aspect of cohesion, and that they're able to to navigate navigate conflict and perceive perceive themselves or a situation in a different light you know Mm -hmm. if there's some element of transformation that's occurred then i think that would be a definition of success and you know kane kind of alluded this i using this in an educational context usually if i'm doing at activities or activities influenced by things like the full values contract and so on and so forth it's to increase cohesion and student engagement. And those I would say are kind of my big two goals if I'm utilizing this in an educational context with counselors and training. Do you have any success stories that you could share? Obviously leaving out any sort of identifying information. Yeah, yes, there's a a few. I think one comes to mind. There was a, a weekend intensive outpatient program that I ran at a local camp area not like camping but like a summer camp type place and we used this facility to to run this program and this is while i was in arkansas but the camp is actually in oklahoma and they have a high ropes course on this this at this campground and so when we were facilitating this program and we had the high rope instructors there as well so we're in as facilitators we are also engaging in the activity along with the clients. So I think that's also a, a really key piece, right? Like that you're engaging in part of the activity, not like just an observer. But through that engagement, I noticed that there were two clients and I think this was the second or, or third day. And they went to the highest point on, on the high ropes. So like the most dangerous, right? Like they didn't, they didn't scaffold or they didn't like try out different levels. They went to right straight to the top. So we allowed it to happen. We didn't say anything. We just kept an eye because we had a, I think a group of maybe eight to 10 participants. And one of the clients goes out and far, far enough to where they're on these like little surfboards or I don't know, maybe it was logs that are elevated at the highest point and they're just dangling and they immediately freeze. And in that moment, we knew that we had to intervene. And so thinking of that, that elevation or that elevated state or arousal state, they went into that panic zone. So they went beyond their level of, of, of that stretch zone or where they're like learning something. So at that point, I, we go up there, I get up there and I'm having to just be very direct and in instruction to like bring her back to that, that safety, that place of safety or comfort. And through that process, it's like there was a switch, right? And so in that process, she was just like, I, didn't, I feel safest not moving and I don't trust you. Literally is verbalizing this to me. I don't trust you and, and saying these things. And I'm like, in that moment, I'm like, I know, I understand. I'm going to do what I can to bring you back to safety and, and to, to alleviate the situation. So I think about 
what seemed like a long time, but maybe it was only like a few minutes. Right. Um, she was able to to come back to me and and trust me and like you physically like hold on to my arms and use me to bring her back to the sense of safety. And she's in tears and we're able to get her off the high ropes course. And, and then we were able to process that. But to me, that was like, if we didn't have that experience, I'm not sure we would have had the breakthrough with that client. So it took that elevated state. And even though I wouldn't say it was necessarily conflict in that small intensive, like three day program, I think there was probably something more impactful and especially for her to verbalize, like, I don't trust you because I've only known you for 48 hours, right. but what that, what that did to, did for her in our relationship and then how she related to other people. Yeah. So I thought that was a, was a really cool experience among many. Yeah, we've for sure been in a, a situation that can parallel that, right? Where we've had this in this heightened state with anxiety or fear or something, and then coming out on the other side of it, you get this greater sense of perspective and can do something with that, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think there was a question that you, you had that I, I really liked, and I think Evan and I talked about was what makes this activity, like what makes AT different from like recess? Right. So... And I think Evan and I talk about this is like, we're being very intentional in where, how we process this activity. Mm -hmm. We're not just merely doing, right. or just playing, but that there is a purpose and intention. And then we unpack that right. to right. have like takeaways. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the intentionality like is built into the choice of activities, right. And planning beforehand and then processing, you wouldn't ask a kid or a teacher wouldn't ask a, a kid before going out to recess, what are your goals for recess? Nice. I, and then have them come back and debrief. What did you learn today at recess? How did your sense of mastery or competency increase? How did your communication skills, you know, improve as a result of playing basketball or whatever? Right. So adventure therapy guides are licensed counselors, correct? Not necessarily. I would say the terminology is like mental health professional. So mm -hmm. that can be a licensed professional counselor. There are also social workers uh -huh. um, that are, I would say, adventure therapists. But within the last year or two, a certification has gone out called the CCAT, so Certified Clinically Clinical Adventure Therapist, and from the TAPG, which is the Therapeutic Adventure Professionals Group. They've mm -hmm. created these guidelines and standards for, for the certification, but mainly LPCs and social workers. And I would say maybe some psychiatrists and psychologists. There's a nature-based therapy program out of Boulder that's developed and kind of ran by a psychiatrist and has social workers and counselors that are also facilitating the activities. Yeah, cool. For our listeners who might be looking for a program, how would one go about finding the right program? Mm, yeah, so I think initially understanding like what what you're able to commit in mm -hmm. terms of your time and resources mm -hmm. uh, and understanding what's going to be expected of you and what expectations you have for either the program or the the whoever's running the program like so as a counselor I, I always speak to my clients and like this is an opportunity for you to interview me and see if this is a good fit right. I hear a lot of folks who aren't aware of the profession, especially adventure therapy, you know, they are easy, they can go different directions in their thought 
process of like, what does that look like? And can jump into a program, not fully understanding or knowing what that program entails. So like, for instance, like it could be a wilderness therapy program. And I, I think there's been some programs in the past that maybe there's an ethically gray area where like they're getting kidnapped in the middle of the night. And <laughs> you know, like that to me is not the most therapeutic thing. And, you know, is, is there going to be, this is part of my bias, but is there going to be a mental health professional or a licensed counselor that's part of this process and engaged in this process right. uh, that, that's going through it with you rather than there being a, say, a, just a guide who has those technical skills, but maybe not the clinical skills right. to address those mental health concerns or things that, that come up, right? To use that activity intentionally. Right. And, and has the training to do so. So I think that's that's another key piece is always be aware of of the the certification or credentials of who's facilitating and and their training and what they're able to to provide as a service. Mm-hmm. Would you add anything else to that, Evan? No, I think again, just being aware of people's credentials, making sure that they have the credentials that you'd want. Yeah. So outside of, of leading these programs, what does your day-to-day work life look like? Are you doing research? Are you writing? Are you teaching or all of the above? For me, yeah, I have a 3-3 load. What does that mean, Evan? Okay, okay, okay. So <laughs> as a counselor educator, I typically teach three classes a semester, trying to publish a couple of articles a year. I'll be presenting at three conferences this year. That's kind of average for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, find that like that's about as many as I can afford and also in terms of money and time so right. yeah currently not seeing any clients at some point I need to 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 start doing more of that and not supervising any any folks under licensure right now also probably need to get on top of that get that going sometime I'm starting my third year as an assistant professor so you know transitioning to working full-time as a as a faculty member during covid was kind of interesting and uh, i think i've kind of adjusted to it now in terms of kind of managing all those responsibilities and again kind of hope to to jump into some more clinical work in the future Yeah. yeah it's interesting because both evan and i were clinicians by background and by trade and then going into academia there's this this role shift to now where we're the ones really focused on training clinicians right so being being clinicians to training clinicians and then our day-to-day is like very much different and depending on the university that you're at the the workload is different so there's a like a heavy emphasis at the university of oklahoma and these other research oriented institutions for producing scholarly activity, which I I enjoy because a lot of my research is more outcome-based research, which is going out into the community and developing these programs and running these programs to develop that evidence-based practice. And so that's really kind of what my desire has been for for AT, especially because AT, when you look internationally, it's been around for some time, especially in the Scandinavian countries and Australia, New Zealand, and even in Canada, there's programs been around for for decades. And I think it's only kind of started catching that wave and that interest, but a lot of people, again, don't really understand it or what it looks like in the U.S. And so that's where um, a lot of my research and focus is 
right now. So that's why I like trying to develop these, being new to Oklahoma, develop these community partnerships to run programs that, similar to what I did or what we did in Arkansas. Uh-huh. I think I've got three more questions for you guys. The The next one kind of, it, it expands on this last answer. Is there anything profound or surprising that you could share about the research and the work that you guys do? Evan's a, a qualitative researcher and I'm a quantitative researcher. And we had, a, we just actually had a, a study published and it was a qualitative study that, that Evan supported me and, and helped me with. And so Evan, would you want to speak to the, to that one? Yeah. So Kane's dissertation was an adventure therapy mountain bike group in Northwest Arkansas with middle school students. And they would complete like kind of a reflective prompt throughout the program and, and analyzing the data and, and looking at like generating themes and, and writing all of that up. A lot of the participant quotes stood out to me. The, the students felt like it gave them something to look forward to going in school. They talked about how their ability to learn skills in the program translated to outside of mountain biking and had like broad applicability in, in their day-to-day life. It talked about how much stress it relieved. And this was during the time of COVID and a lot of the students were, you know, increasing, had an increased level of stress and anxiety just due to all the the things associated with COVID, starting and stopping school, and a lot of them reflected on feeling like adventure therapy and the mountain biking program gave them some, like, one thing that was somewhat consistent or something that they felt safe in. And, you know, it's, again, kind of going back to that question about it, what differentiates this between just normal play, recess, Uh, What's the utility and importance of this, Uh, you know, just reading the quotes, the the profound benefit that they were experiencing as a result of this program. And, you know, going back to resources and it it costs money and takes time, but how much benefit they got out of it for the amount of time and energy that was invested in it really, really stood out and resonated. It seemed like a great way to support their normal development and and again, wasn't really taking too much out of their time from class and other sort of things. It was a, it fit in neatly to their schedule. And so, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Then my next question, would you guys talk a little bit about the presentation that you'll be giving at the Zero Symposium in September? Yeah. Um, I'll let you take that one, Ken, as first, okay. first presenter. All right. Yeah, I think we, we may even cover some of the, the outcomes that, that were from that study and other studies, because I think when, as a quantitative researcher, I think data is fun and cool and, and running the, the results from that is really interesting and, and can tell its own story. But when you get to the, that quantitative level, it really illuminates beyond just that quantitative data. Yeah. So when Evan talks about the students and their level of motivation, and they're and, and witnessing and being a part of their journey of building that that self-efficacy and that sense of resiliency and, and confidence was really cool and you should see the that that transformation piece right so with the zaro presentation what we're hoping to achieve is one unpacking these concepts of at what does this actually look like and and really exploring the the model that's developed and the components that are part of that model and how that can be translatable to different settings and for different fields. So 
how can you do this in a classroom as an as an educator? How can you do this as a, maybe a non mental health professional? And I think that's a really cool aspect to this is that you can adapt a lot of these ideas and transform it into your language to your setting to make it applicable. So like Evan might, might mention in the classroom, how does he facilitate or use these ideas? Mm-hmm but specifically to to family so i know that i mentioned earlier like i haven't done a lot of work with families using at mm-hmm. but there's a lot of utility behind it and i and i and it has been done and so we'd be able to speak to those aspects and and what that looks like and then really identifying the the barriers of running these type of groups mm-hmm. and how to to overcome those barriers so like one of the things i had mentioned was have the access to resources and so that naturally makes us seek those partnerships or that that community partnership or engagement and, and ability to collaborate with others like i would not be able to ever run a program on my own like it takes it takes a village right so it right. takes different working pieces to make it happen so I think really going into and exploring all those, especially in the time frame that we have, is kind of our, our hope. And yeah. Yeah. All right. Is there anything um, that you think would be valuable for our listeners to know that we haven't covered yet? Have anything come to mind to you? I do remember when we were kind of looking at and kind of preparing for this, talking about, for me, I think one thing I hope that folks coming to our presentation or listening to this, I hope one thing that's a takeaway is just, again, the broad applicability, right? Like you don't have to be out in, in wilderness to utilize these concepts, right? Like things like stretch zones, full values contract. These are things that have broad utility and, um, you know, in education and counseling, family, individual, so on and so forth. So I, I think that's something I hope that people take away. Great. Thank you very much. And for anybody who wants to find your work or learn more about the programs you have, how would they do that? Well, so we both have faculty profiles. So I think, and you had mentioned, I think you were exploring that. So they could easily find our information on the, those faculty pages. I think we both have social media. Have the level of activity on social media is variable. Right. So, I, I think we're both on ResearchGate and... You know. Google Scholar. So I, I think depending on the publications or an articles that we've written, the accessibility varies depending on if you have academic access or not. So I think the, the easiest way to get access to that is, as Evan said, either through ResearchGate or just contacting us. But we will also post those things on our social media faculty okay. profiles. All right, guys. Thank you both so much. Yeah, thank you. Well, it was a pleasure to meet you. Hey, and, uh, this was fun. Yeah, I look forward to hearing you guys at Zero next month. Yeah, so, I look forward right. to, to chatting with you more and, and getting to chat, at maybe uh, go rock climbing sometime. For sure, anytime. Awesome. All right, <laughs> bye guys. Bye. Mental Health Download. I'm Addie McCaslin with Mental Health Association, Oklahoma.